Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Each person's journey is unique. Our goal is to connect survivors to resources along the way on their path to healing. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. We are here to help survivors get access to justice. Join us on this journey. Here is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Welcome to Support for Survivors. Today, we are thrilled to welcome Stephanie Hutchins to our show. Stephanie is a college professor of 12 years, a certified life coach, stress management coach, neuro-linguistic programming practitioner, yoga instructor, author of Transformation After Trauma, Embracing Post-Traumatic Growth, and owner of the business she founded, Serotonous Life. Welcome, Stephanie. We're very happy to have you today. Oh, thank you. And I'm very happy to be here. Good, good. Are you doing okay? Oh, of course. Yes. (laughs) It's a beautiful day out and I generally like to stay grateful for every day. So (laughs) that is definitely the way to go through life. Well, first of all, let's start talking about your business, Serotonous Life. Talk about what your company does. But first of all, Tell us what that word even means, serotonous. <laughs> I don't think that most people know what it means. Frankly, I did not know until I came across your company. Yeah. So um, so I am, was a biology professor for 12 years, and I taught mostly anatomy and physiology, but a number of science-based courses. So when choosing my business name, I couldn't help but tie in a biological term. <laughs> But it has an immense amount of meaning to me and the mission behind my business. I don't know if you're familiar, but serotonous cones Mm -hmm. are a type of pine cone that only open in response to some kind of environmental trigger like fire. And the giant sequoias out in the Western United States, like in parks like Yosemite, are actually an example of a tree that have serotonous cones. And giant sequoias are actually the largest trees on earth. And humans almost protected them into extinction by preventing fire from going through the forest. And what they didn't realize is the trees, the cones actually needed fire to open so they can experience growth. And why that is significant to me is because I've experienced a lot of trauma in my life, which we're obviously going to talk about. But I have also, in addition to my trauma, have experienced tremendous growth in my life. And I feel it is directly related to the traumas that I've experienced. And so I liken this post-traumatic growth that we can experience after trauma to the growth that occurs with trees that have serotonous cones, they can only grow when they're exposed to trauma. (laughs) And so it's very profound for me. And that's why, you know, I I also tie in that concept with my book, Transformation After Trauma, Embracing Post-Traumatic Growth, because I truly believe that's possible for us, you know, transformation. That's a beautiful analogy. Thank you. And so what do you do at Serotonous Life? So I'm a life coach. And so it's a coaching practice. And so I do one-on-one coaching. I also have some online courses and online coaching packages. But I've been spending much of my time recently doing free webinars that people can access around the world. So I've been getting people. It's really wonderful during this time of COVID that I've been able to reach a lot of people who are in need of help through platforms 
platforms like Zoom and Facebook. And I've been focusing on my writing. I'm already up to page 105 in my second book. So wow. <laughs> it's very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Some people have done a better job, I think, of, than others of taking this time to be more efficient. But you're right. I mean, we wouldn't be doing this right now if it weren't for Zoom. So that's pretty cool. So why don't we talk about how you got to where you are today? Let's go into that trauma a little bit and talk about where your journey started in those terms. So I don't like to go too deep into any of it, but I do want to give an idea of where um, I'm coming from. So I have been sexually violated by eight men, and those occurred between the ages of nine and 19. And um, I never told about the one that happened around the ages of nine and 10 of because of who it was. Um, and then at 12, when I was violated again by somebody else um, over and over, when I finally told, um, I'm from a very small town, and it was decided that we no charges would be pressed against them, and it, nothing would be, nobody would speak of it. It would just, um, the person would go to counseling um, because of the stigma that would be associated because it was a family uh, member, and so nothing happened. But then, so that's at 12, but then at 13 and 14, I was violated by three more people during that time frame. And because of, I just, because of how the others, it was same small town, because of how the other was handled, why would this be any different? So I didn't say anything. And then at 15, I was at a party and um, I had been drinking. Unfortunately, um, I was very self-destructive as a teenager and I did drink a lot. And I was at a party that had adult men at it in addition to young teenage boys. And I was violated by two more men that night. And one of them was the boyfriend of the mother. It was one of my friend's parties and her boyfriend was one of them that violated me. And I could only remember snippets of the night because I had so much to drink. And the next morning when I woke up, I saw my friend's mother because it was my friend's birthday party. And his mother looked at me the next morning with just complete disgust. And so even though I couldn't remember everything that had happened the night before, just the way she looked at me, uh, it told me I should be ashamed of myself. And I said, I'm sorry. And she looked at me and said, you knew exactly what you were doing and you got everything you asked for. And so, yeah, so then I, of course, never said anything about what happened because then I was just ashamed of myself because I, of course, was told I brought it upon myself. Of course. I mean, definitely that's what anyone's going to think, especially a teenage girl. So my question right now is... You said you grew up in a small town. And so yeah. when you had told at age 12, it got swept mm -hmm. under the rug, essentially, because I grew up in a small town, too. So I understand mm -hmm. how things go. So when these other things happen, as you're getting a little bit older in your teenage years, did those perpetrators know that that had happened to you before? No. So I didn't know these two men. So it wasn't, it was like in a town, another small town, like 20 minutes away from okay. my small town. And so I had never seen them before or since. So no, no. They didn't and the reason know. I ask is that I think that when people on its face, when they hear how 
awful what you have been through and how many different people have done this to you. I think a lot of people don't understand how much more likely it is for a person to be assaulted again after they've been assaulted once. The odds go up exponentially. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is just because of I became very self-destructive. I had an immense amount of self-loathing and I didn't care about me or my body. And I put myself in a lot of dangerous situations. And it's hard not to even today when I sit here and I think about it, you know, I had this one woman that I thought would be angry at her boyfriend for violating me. And instead she was angry at me. And so that just reinforced for me that I am wrong. And then a year later, so I used to walk, I still walk a lot, but when I was a teenager, I would walk and walk for miles every day. And that's how I, uh, one of my main ways that I dealt with everything that I was going through. And um, one of those days when I was walking, one of the teenage boys in my town, when I was passing by his house, he came up behind me and put a knife to my throat and tried to drag me off the side of the road. But as he was pulling me off the road towards his house, he lost his footing and I was able to get the knife away from him and run away to safety. But what ended up happening is so I was, I used to be very heavy and the person who that violated me at 12 used to grab my fat on my stomach and say, you are so disgusting. You should be so grateful that I even want to touch you. You're so disgusting. And so after that, I, I developed a very terrible eating disorder and I lost a lot of weight and I used to dress with very little clothes on to just make me feel beautiful and like I was desirable. And so when I was doing these walks around town, I would have short shorts on and like a little tank top. And on this day, when that boy put a knife to my throat, one of the people in my family, she looked at me and said, look at what you're wearing. It's no wonder this happened to you. And so it just then, you know, reinforced this, it's my fault. And then because he was a teenage boy, it's a small town, no charges were pressed against him and he went to counseling. And so then when at 19, I was at a party in one of the neighboring towns drinking, when I was violated again that night after passing out, I never told anyone again because it was, of course, my fault. Well, why would you at that right. point? So I've actually had, I had somebody, I, I did a video um, on YouTube for my business where I said how I had been violated by eight men and somebody from a man from my hometown wrote a nasty comment on the YouTube video that I had. Now I had to like ban comments. It was so disgusting. And he was like, eight men, like, name them. You should name them all. And did this even really happen? And it's like, still, even today, I am questioned years later, like, why would I, I make this up? And I never talked about any of this to anyone. What had happened is I just, again, I felt so disgusting. I felt so unlovable. And then at 24, I met a beautiful man 
His name was Stan and he loved me like no one had ever loved me before. He would, I'd find uh, flowers on my doorstep and cards on my pillowcase and he would cook amazing meals for me and just do anything to make me smile. But he was not a healthy man. He was a drug addict. He was an alcoholic. Actually, three weeks after meeting him, I had to give him CPR because while the ambulance came because he almost died from a heroin overdose. And he was on life parole. So I had to deal with like regular visits from his parole officer and him criticizing me and saying, why are you with him? Why are you with him? What's wrong with you for being with him? But Stan was the first man who ever made me feel that I was lovable and worth loving. After a year of being together, him and I decided to buy a house together. And that's when I decided that I finally would start talking about my story with a therapist. So would you say that when you started in this relationship with Stan, was that kind of a turning point in your life where you left maybe some of those really dark days that you had for years behind you and started that journey of growth and healing? Yeah. So before I met Stan, I was very suicidal. I had never told anybody this, but I was every day contemplating taking my life. And I had met him and that changed. He gave me, he just showed me like a beautiful part of life and he saved me and didn't even know he saved me because I never told him about anything I had went through. But because I had this person that loved me and wanted to spend his life with me, I had sought out a therapist to start working through these wounds that I had. And a couple of days after I started therapy, I had decided to tell Stan what I was reliving. And the same, literally the same day, he found out his mother had terminal cancer. So I decided not to tell him because he was devastated. Two weeks later, she died with Stan and I by her side in her home. And so that was the first person I ever saw die in front of me. And then two weeks later, I found Stan dead. A week and a half after that, I closed on the house that him and I were supposed to be moving into together and buying together. And my world just fell apart. Like it was just a devast. That was like, so here I had this, like this man that saved me and, and he's gone. And here I was reliving traumas I had buried deep for years And I had to handle it all on my own. And now was living in a house where everywhere I turned, I was thinking about the plans him and I had for every room. Sure. I mean, I can't even imagine how hard that was. You finally kind of started to progress and move forward and try to leave some of that behind and work through it. And then the person that, you know, you relied on for emotional support and who was by your side was taken from you almost in an instant. And, you know, of course, that's just additional trauma that you're dealing with. So how did you move forward? I had a a long, well over a year, almost a year and a half of a very self-destructive phase. I've always had a problem with promiscuity, but it spiraled out of control after he died. And I got very, I became morbidly obese after that time period. 
I really a credit to my mother. I wasn't able to work during that time because I just couldn't, I couldn't, I could barely get myself out of bed most days. And my mother had been financially supporting me for over a year. And she finally said like, enough is enough, Stephanie. I cannot keep financially supporting you unless you get help. And so she uh, had given, oh, because what I didn't include as part of my story is that therapist that I had was started to see like a month after Stan died told me that unless I accepted God into my life, I was never going to be able to heal. And I've always had a very difficult relationship with God. And and I told her that. And she said, well, she essentially put her hands up in a meeting in one of our sessions and said, well, unless you're ready to accept him into your life, it's just not going to happen. So was that counseling provided through a church or other faith-based organizations? No, she was, um, no, she had, I think she was a psych D. So she was a, had her doctorate. Sounds kind of unethical. Right. So here I was spiraling out of control and was not seeing any, getting any help for it. And so my family found a therapist and my mom made the ultimatum that you've got to start seeking help. And I did. And so in that therapist was absolutely wonderful for me because she didn't push me faster or farther than I was ready to go. Like I felt she was like a partner in my journey. You know, she was like by my side versus like being above me, like Mm -hmm. as this like prophet that I'm supposed to follow. She was just a partner by my side and was just there for me in a way that I needed I think that's a really important point to make for people who are going through this right now, or if a loved one is that it, because you go to one therapist and they're either really bad or you just don't click or something, that doesn't mean that therapy as a whole is bad for you. It's a very important thing. And you do have to have that symbiotic relationship and you may very well not likely have it with the first one or even the second one, but you got to hang in there. I think, because I mean, it sounds like you really, you finally found somebody after that horrible experience with the other one, you finally found someone who you did click with, who has helped you to really grow exponentially in that time. Yeah. What happened is after I started seeking help, I really started to look at what do I need to do to move forward? Because I couldn't stay where I was at. You know, my mom was saying enough is enough, but I had also reached that point where I could not continue living the way that I was living. So I said, okay, what has to change? And some of the first things was basic self-care. I was not bathing myself. I was not showing myself any kind of love because I didn't feel I deserved it. So initially, so like goal setting was really important for me and is still important today. So I would write down goals for myself for the day. And my initial goals were to brush my teeth because Mm -hmm. I wasn't even doing that for days at a time. And then I would put a goal of bathing, you know, at least once a day. Literally one step at a time. One, literally, like people don't realize, like I literally had to start with those baby steps. And some of those steps were the hardest for me to do because I didn't feel I deserved them. 
I was filled with so much self-loathing that I just, I didn't even feel I deserved basic self-care. It was really hard for me to do that. And then it became, okay, I've got to take care of my home. So it's taking out the trash. As I started doing just basic self-care, I started building that belief that I deserved this. People believe that they have to feel deserving before they will do something like self-care. Mm-hmm. But I have found in my own life that actually you practice the regular self-care to build the belief that you deserve it. Oh, you know? absolutely. I 100% believe that. And I think that for a lot of people, when they are first looking at it, it just seems like so overwhelming and such a mountain to come across. And so illustrating that it is one step at a time, just take one step more forward. And then before you know it, you've actually accomplished a lot more and you're far along on your journey. As long as you really do just focus on that next step and doing what you need to do to take back control of your life. Because I think that that's, what's an important point here too, is that you have the control to do that and nobody else does. And nobody is taking control from you anymore. It is you. And you know, it cuts both ways, I suppose, but it is on you. No one else can do it for you. Right. But that was very empowering to know that I had the power to take care of myself. And you know what started to happen? What was really critical in my journey is because, so I I reached um, 222 pounds before the age of 30. I had high cholesterol and sleep apnea. And my primary care doctor, she was patient with me for a few years after Stan died, but eventually said like, she said enough is enough. Like this is not healthy. You have to change. And so in that process of losing weight, I started seeking out meetup groups I found hiking groups actually, and hiking eventually became a critical component of my healing journey because it showed me that, so here I was hiking and I'm morbidly obese, like every little hill felt as big as Mount Everest to me. And so I literally could not focus on the top of the hill or the summit of the mountain. I had to literally focus on the one step in front of me and chunk it down, chunk down the hike from one step at a time. But it became so empowering to know that my body eventually got me to that destination and it got me to the top of the mountain and it started building that belief in myself of my strength. And then I started looking at all that I endured as I started climbing the mountains and I looked at, I have been through so much but I am so strong. Like I'm still here. Like I can't believe it. There were so many times I wanted to take my life. There were so many times that I could have just ended it, but I'm still here. I survived. And hiking helped me to reframe Mm -hmm. my trauma. Instead of looking at my trauma and all that I had lost and all that would never be, I looked at how strong I was to make it through all of that. And with each hike, well, interestingly enough, it reinforced that belief in myself that I am strong. And because I could see it in myself physically, I could see me losing pounds. I could see that I was moving faster. So I could see physically that I was changing, but mentally and emotionally as I was changing because I started working again. 
as I started proving to myself that I was strong and proving to myself, showing myself that I deserve self-care and self-love, I started progressing in other aspects of my life. It just trickled down into different aspects. So I started working, I started teaching and I was good at it. And once I got affirmation that I was good at something that just built my belief Mm -hmm. further in myself. That's amazing. Yeah. I I, I truly do believe in the power of reframing. And to some extent, it's fake it till you make it, I think, (laughs) in some ways. But yes, if you start looking at things a different way, even in terms of hiking, I know that you said it was completely overwhelming when you first thought about that at the beginning because you were so out of shape. But even that's a little reframing too, because all of a sudden you're not exercising to get in shape or to lose weight. You're exercising to be able to hike. And so then your goal is different. And that's not quite the same thing, but it's parallel to it. And so what you said today, I think is so important and so relatable to a lot of people, your entire journey through the dark days. I don't think that a lot of people understand that the desire or the, I guess, the innate responsibility or urge to take care of yourself leaves and it's gone and promiscuity, uh, morbid obesity. Those are very, very common consequences or subsequent circumstances after something like this happens. And so it's really inspiring to hear the way that you move through that. And that really, it really was just one step at a time and focusing on the next step in building blocks. That's what they are. And you got better and better. So you've talked a little bit about what some of the people around you did to help you. Is there anything that stands out that anyone else did that was very helpful to you when you were going through these times? I don't have a specific person I want to point out. I would say What had helped me the most, even today, still has helped me the most, is just having people actually want to know how I'm doing, Mm -hmm. like to actually show that they care and that what I say and think matters. Even though I have done so much growth, I am still highly sensitive to people not listening to me or showing me that I don't matter. So it matters a lot to me when I know that people are listening intent, like they are focused on what I'm saying and that they're engaged in the conversation and what I think matters to them. Throughout my healing journey, those people who were able to just be with me regardless of what we were discussing and to just make me feel like I was important in that moment just made the world of difference to me and still does today. That's really profound. On the flip side, we've talked a little bit about a couple of people in particular, especially mm-hmm. that friend's mom who did something that was harmful and even re-traumatizing to you by saying those things to you. And I would think that even the people when you were 12, when you did tell and the authorities didn't do right by you, nobody really did right by you. Did you have to go through even more of that as your journey continued on? Were there other instances? I'm sure there were, and you don't have to get into them specifically. It's just, I think that it's important for people to understand that this is, this could be ongoing for some people. I think it's important for people to understand why I never talked. That's why some people just, they have a disbelief over eight men violated me plus another attacked me at knife point. He's not counted in that number because he wasn't successful in violating me. You know, people don't believe it because they see me today. People look at my smile and they look at my cheerful disposition and they can't believe that all of that happened. But what people need to understand is how many times people dismissed my feelings. 
So I still had to be around this person who violated me at 12. I still had to be around him. And I became very angry and started lashing out at him when we were in the same room. And one of my family members that was supposed to be somebody I could trust told me that if I could not learn to control myself in his home, that I would not be welcome back if I could not grow up. That became my message that I needed to learn how to control my feelings. And anytime somebody hurt me, I had to stuff it inside. And so I had to pretend it didn't happen. Do you know, I didn't actually count the number of men who violated me until I started going through my journals when I was writing my book. I didn't count them because I had put them like in a little box and pretended them that they didn't happen because I had to do that because the world is telling me that what I think and feel does not matter and that it is more important for us to pretend that life is good and easy mm-hmm. and that I just need to pretend that even though it's not true. I had this programming from a very young age. So people don't understand that that was really hard to break. Even today, do you know that I still won't name some of my victimizers because I'm afraid of hurting the people that don't know? And people think, oh my God, now you're supposed to be standing up for survivors. Shouldn't you name them? No, I still, that program is is still there Mm -hmm. of being afraid of hurting the people that will now know, you know, I can't bring myself to name some of them. You know, it's, it's a continuous journey, right? On and on, mm-hmm. you just kind of keep going forward, but it does pervade your entire life in the way that you, or it can pervade your entire life in the way that you have deal with conflict resolution or deal with those other kinds of relationships, which again, why it is so important to get that help that you need. You've shared a lot today and it's terrible to hear, but at the same time, very inspiring to see you doing so well. Is there anything else that you want to say that could be helpful for survivors or uh, professionals working within the field of sexual assault? anybody who loved ones. Yeah. So what I guess I'll say to the professionals that help survivors and the the loved ones of survivors is to just please do not push them faster or farther than they're ready to go. And please do not put a timeline on their healing. Like really this, I cannot even tell you, even my clients today that I have literally was on a coaching call with one of my clients who was going over like how one of their traumas was still affecting them. And I heard their fiance in the background say, why are you still talking about that? That happened six months ago. Please just be patient with them. And everyone's timeline for healing is going to be different. I also have to say to the survivor is to also be patient with yourself and do not place a timeline on yourself. And even if society tells you you should be moving faster, you have to trust yourself. And I know that's very difficult, but to listen to what's right inside of you and just honor yourself and just be compassionate and kind to yourself, even if the world isn't showing you that, to try as hard as you can to be the first one to start that pattern of kindness and compassion towards yourself. That does beg one more question for me. Yeah. <laughs> How do you handle it continuing on? Because it's not like you just wake up one day and you're cured. There are going to continue to be triggering events. So how can survivors learn to cope as they go? I mean, obviously we're not going to go too far into that because that's a therapy question, but do you have anything to share that you think that could help people? One thing that I have found particularly important to my healing journey has been meditation. 
And what's interesting is even though meditation I have found to be extremely critical in my healing journey, it's also difficult to implement in the early stages because people are very scared of what kind of thoughts are going to come up with silence. But that's exactly why meditation is powerful is because meditation is all about bringing yourself back to a single point of focus. Anytime you get off, you come back. And no matter how many times you get off track during your meditation, you keep coming back to your point of focus. And what people don't understand is so like I, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. So like I still have visions of like there's there can be things that will cause me to have like a very profound memory of being violated and I could be working. And what I do is I practice my meditation. My work in that point in time is my point of focus. And I practice coming back, looking at, I take a deep breath. I remind myself that I'm safe and I'm not being hurt in the moment. And I come back to my single point of focus. And I may have to do that over and over and over again. But even today, I still, they still come up. Sometimes I may be walking and something just may come in my memory, just a random thought of something that happened to me. And I don't even know what, what triggered it. And I have to come back. Okay, let's focus on the walk. One step in front of you, one step at a time. Yeah. That's great advice. I practice meditation every day. And when I remember when I first started, I was like, what? I'm not doing that. That sounds so <laughs> stupid. And then the difference that it really does make is huge. I yeah can't recommend it enough. So thank you so much for sharing all that. I think that you've really, really given survivors and loved ones and professionals a lot to think about and a lot of good advice for them on their journeys. So we're going to wrap it up with our three questions here. The first question is, what does courage mean to you? It means to keep going, even when you're tired and scared. And, you know, like I think about how many times I wanted to give up and it was because I didn't want to face one more day of the same in just pure darkness and feeling like it was never going to end. And I think that it took immense courage for me to keep going Absolutely. one more day every day. And for all of us that are still here, plugging along one day at a time even though we're carrying all this baggage and we're tired from lugging it along to just keep putting one more step in front of the other, it takes an immense amount of courage to do it. That's absolutely true and great advice. What is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Well, you know, this is interesting because I'm going to have to say that it actually is just, it's a quote that I keep in my head. So one of my meditations that I have is a mantra and it's from, it's from Gandhi. So it's not like Gandhi spoke it to me specifically, <laughs> but I hear like it has really become part of my being. And one of his quote that I, I always reiterate is be the change you wish to see in the world. And I consider that to be great advice because mm -hmm. I think we can always go one of two ways after experiencing trauma. Sure. We can inflict just as much or more pain as we have experienced, you know, because of our resentment and anger for what we have gone through, or mm -hmm. we can give the world what we were not given ourselves. I always say to myself, 
be the change. Oh my God, I'm teary-eyed with this because it means, I'm sorry. Don't apologize. You know, I want to show the world the love and compassion that I was not given for much of my life. And I, I'm so sorry. Do not apologize, please. I know I've not always been my best self and I have hurt other people, but I try very hard to just be different than what I've experienced and to break that cycle of shame and judgment and to not pass it on. Just we have to stop repeating the cycles that keep hurting us. Well, I think that goes back to question one, because I think that's very courageous and difficult to do and important because that is the way that changes are made in our own lives. Last question. What is one question that you wish more people would ask you? I think it goes back to a response I gave earlier is I wish people would ask me, how are you? And actually want to know the answer. Yeah, because how are you has become like, hello. It sure has. And hi. Yeah, and people are just like, I'm fine. Everyone says, I'm fine, I'm okay. And they don't really give an honest answer. Yeah. It's not an honest interaction. Right. That's really great. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on today. You know, going from victim to survivor to activist is such a noble and compelling journey and an important one for people to hear about. So thank you for sharing that with us for all of the help that you give to people every day in your practice. We wish you nothing but the best. And thank you very sincerely for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. And as always, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time.